Let's pretend that this isn't advice. And I'm Erin, and I'm not giving you advice. It's it's not advice. I can't help myself <laughs> give advice. I don't mean to. I don't want to. I want you to be able to live your life, but I know how to do it. I'm a huge know-it-all, and this is where I practice not giving advice to people. Except I totally give advice to them. I'm a lawyer turned professional certified coach, and I just happen to give the best advice. But this is a podcast, not a coaching session, so I obviously don't do that here, except I do. This is not advice with Erin Conlon, your know-it-all lawyer coach friend. This is not advice. Okay, so on this week's episode, we have the best guest ever. It is yours truly, one Aaron Conlon, former lawyer, current podcaster, current coach. I had my producer, Steve, from Cedar Cathedral Narrative Studios interview me. Steve and I talk about like what made me choose what I did, how I made those choices. I also tell a little bit of the story about how I ended up as a lawyer. Um, and that's how I relate to it is that I ended up as a lawyer. Um, and... I don't know. I had fun talking about myself. I'm, I don't like to relate to myself as a narcissist, but today I <laughs> definitely gave myself a little bit of time on air. Um, also, while we're at it, I am probably going to open up a group coaching session in October. So if you are interested in working with me, please reach out. And in the meantime, share this podcast with other people because Steve and I talk about how I want to go on tour and that will only happen if you all talk about it with other people. Okay, thanks. So, hi, Steve. Hey, Erin. How are you? You know, it's a, it's a weird day today. Like, it's hot and muggy and gray and also the middle of summer. And it's one of those things where I'm like, my mood is not matching the experience that is outside. Because you're frenetically happy? <laughs> yeah. I'm always so happy. My life is so amazing. I've never said this is what happens with personal transformation. <laughs> <laughs> No, <laughs> I'm just in a good mood today, I guess. I feel like it's nice out there. I just went for a walk by the lake. I mean, it's like a coldish blanket of 100% humidity, but in a as long as that happens in July, I'm happy with it. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, so the tables are turned today. You are going to interview me. Um, I'm excited to ask the questions, to give the advice. Probably more questions than advice. I don't, I don't have that tendency so much, unless I do. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. You don't, you're not the know-it-all that I am. <laughs> I mean, I secretly think I know. I just choose to keep it to myself, and just judge you when you don't do what I'm sure you should have done. Oh, that's my favorite. <laughs> so, everyone, like, I wish people talked about how judgmental they were a little bit more, because then we would at least know. <laughs> I just want to confess. You remember that choice you made five minutes ago? I think it was, it was the wrong stupid. choice. <laughs> <laughs> I would have handled that better. Just FYI. Okay, good. <laughs> um, well, so I was thinking to have that I was going to have you interview me today. You, Steve, are my producer. You produce all of the episodes of the show. You made the introduction. Um, you make me look good, basically. Like I know what I'm doing. I do not. <laughs> you absolutely know what you're doing, but but thank you. I'll take it all. Yeah. Well, and I was thinking, you know, when you're leaning back and not giving advice, it's kind of hard for people to get to know you. 
And I feel as though maybe people want to know who this person is who's asking all these questions. So I thought we could try that today. Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good insight. It's an interesting place to start, though. How much of you do you think someone can get to know just by listening to you ask people questions? I mean, I'm a professional interviewer, so I'm curious about this. Like, am I just like a cipher if I'm interviewing someone, or does my personality come through? I think everyone's personality comes through. You know, like people like listening to certain news anchors and they're just reading the news, but you still might relate to Peter Jennings or Brian Williams or Barbara Walters way more than you would relate to like, what's that guy that got in trouble? Matt Lauer, the sexual harasser. I love Tom Brokaw. He's my guy out of those. He's like my my childhood, whatever you're Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw, the South, yeah. the South Dakotan was my like gold standard personality. So like, I don't care what he's talking about. I just feel a little better about the world right now. Mm-hmm. I cried when Peter Jennings died. Hmm. I was like, I don't know why it hit me so hard, but I remember being like, oh my God, this is terrible. I'm so sad. <laughs> who Who is going to read the news? Well, I think... You know, those newscasters, especially for our generation, that was like what the dinner table thing was. Like we watched, or my family watched the news at dinner. And so you like, they feel like a part of your family. Also, my family is very heady and political. So, so Peter's riffing like set up the, the Conlon family discussion for the next two hours? A little bit, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> So, all right, there's the setup. Today mm-hmm. we will be getting this, the, the deeper insight into the other side of your personality as you answer the questions. Mm-hmm. Are you going to like this? Do you like answering questions as much as you like asking them? No. <laughs> I, I mean, kind of. I think I'm – one thing, I'm very shy. Um. I don't come across as shy, but I am very shy and I am always worried that people are going to be like, oh my God, that person's a monster. And so I'm a little worried about that. (laughs) Well, all right. So this is also interesting because you ask questions now in two different contexts. You ask them as a coach, which is one thing. And now you ask them as an interviewer, which is a different thing. And you're trying to maybe achieve something that overlaps, but is a little bit different in those conversations. So maybe take either of them separately, but like, how do those things make you self-conscious about answering questions in front of an audience in a different way? Mm. Well, I, so I have a coach. Like, I think it's malpractice to be to be a coach and not have your own supervision or your own coaching. Like, all therapists should have a supervisor. And what your coach does and what a therapist supervisor does is keep you on track and you objective. So as an interviewer, like, I am talking with somebody to, one, make them sound amazing – Like I want them and the people listening to this podcast to hear how cool other people are. And as a coach, I'm listening for like the frameworks that people bring to their lives that get in their way. And so I think sometimes like my, my interview questions will kind of point to that, but without being confronting, um, 
And I think the thing that I'm like apprehensive about today is probably somewhere in the middle of there is like, what are the judgments that other people are going to come up with me or from about me? I mean, those are kind of overlapping points when you're coaching, you're trying to draw out the person help. I mean, yes, self-fulfillment and all that stuff, but there's a, an aspect of which, you know, the, the most show offable podcast interview friendly version is also like the most self-actualized post coaching version. So, you know, yeah. this is like the, the showcase moment <laughs> you've, you've come out of like training and now it's like, am I going to be awesome? And I don't know, I, I feel like this when I have been interviewed, having been on the other side of it, I'm aware of all the like moments where I should rock it. So I'm super self-conscious about the, Oh, this part of my story is a little weak. It should be better. I should have done something more. (laughs) You know what happens with me is I always forget the details that actually make it valuable. Like later on, I'll be like, Oh wait, that was an important detail that I didn't tell that. But yeah. So, okay, let's get into it then. Let's let's move from the conceptual asking to the actual uh, to the actual asking. Do you give yourself uh, advice? Like, how do you? Yeah, how, are you are you your own client? And like, yeah. what's, yeah, we're, we're going to walk through because I would everyone who's listening to the show and who's listened to the other um, installments of this is not advice knows how you, you know, you're passionate about people's journey to fulfillment. You've made enough of those like crisscross turns over the course of your career that, you know, you're very thoughtful about this. So how easy is it without the help of your supervisor, your coach to like course, correct, evaluate all that stuff? Well, so I've done a lot of course correcting in my life and the difference is like I started writing comedy in 2009. Um, and that was after I had done all of that. Like I had been a lawyer, I had gotten laid off. I went and worked for the Obama campaign and I was unemployed. And I came back to my apartment in Chicago, back in Lakeview when I used to live over there. And I was like, how, like, how do I want to live? What's important to me? And I chose at that moment, like laughter, bringing people joy was something that was going to be, was really important to me. It's who I wanted to be in the world. Um, And so I like took classes and did stuff, but I never, when I was doing comedy and thinking about changing careers from being a lawyer to a comedian, I never put enough structure around me to make the actual change. And so to answer your question, like, yes, I've always been on this like, self-improvement journey, but the real difference in making the change was choosing to. And for me, since I went into coaching, that ended up being getting a coach too. All right. (laughs) This seems like the moment to like jump back to when you're four years old. Let's tell your whole journey. But I'm I'm interested in this though, like specifically, I have a friend who had a similar journey and quit being a lawyer to become a comedian, but without the sort of like catalytic moment of getting laid off to force one to like think about your path. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you didn't necessarily have that. So, you know, what's, you know, beginning with the choice to go to law school and then you, I mean, like 
more than a decade of your life happens basically how how self-directed was that and what was your like evaluation process through that of is this the life that I want no I need to be doing something different that should oh yeah up up until then I didn't have that kind of I mean like I've always had a what kind of life do I want to have and I I was young. Like I was one of those people who was 17 when they graduated from high school, 21 when they graduated from college. I was the youngest kid in my class. Like, um, and I was always really verbal and deemed smart. Like I got good grades, I went to good schools, et cetera, et cetera. I did well on the ACT. Um SAT, not so much, but the ACT I did way better. (laughs) And so like in college, everyone's asking you like, what do you want to do? And it's kind of like, oh, I'll be a lawyer because that's what my options were. Like as a kid, I was presented with lawyer, doctor, scientist. Everything else was like, well, that could be hard, (laughs) which is kind of ridiculous. Like you won't have a license. You would like... What a, what's the measure of success for that? Um, and I think lawyer always resonated with me because of the justice and because of the writing part of it. And so it just became my default. Well, if not, I'll go to law school. And I did all the studying for the LSAT. And then I magically did well on the LSAT. <laughs> not <laughs> like my practice tests were 50th percentile and my actual test was 93rd. <laughs> That's like a massive jump. Um, And so when I magically did well on the LSAT, I kind of had it as my back pocket and I didn't go straight to law school. I came to Chicago. I taught and I was a substitute teacher for CPS and I got, I had like three or four waitressing jobs. Um, And I just, I got into law school and I ended up getting into Michigan, which was a top 10 law school at the time. And it just felt stupid to not go. So let's take a moment now to criticize American society. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It almost seems because what you said about doctor, scientist or lawyer resonates. And I feel like there's almost this, especially amongst the, you know, humanities type. Yeah. Like like if you're a right brain creative sort and you happen to grow up in a family that watches the news and uses Peter Jennings as your jumping off point, like law is like the only responsible choice because comedian is not one of those choices. (laughs) (laughs) Journalism was always borderline and now it's definitely, you know, not a place to go make a sustainable living and so forth. So it's like law or bust a little bit, even though it's a really specific, peculiar choice that doesn't exactly seem like the place that everyone who thrives in the humanities would necessarily want to land. No, it's kind of like, you know, through a certain lens, being a lawyer is just the pro- the like continuous process of learning. Like that's what a really good lawyer would be doing. They'd be learning about their clients, learning about industries, all of that stuff. But really what it is, is being a professional warrior and it sucks. <laughs> And so like, there's nothing, I guess the creative thing about being a lawyer is like, what worry can you come up with to protect against that somebody else hasn't thought of? I have an innovative contribution to the panic literature. (laughs) This is really me making my mark. 
Like, why do so many lawyers have anxiety? Because they're fucking trained to. That's their job. Um, but yeah, no, like, you're exactly right. I, I would have been a journalist if somebody hadn't told me I'd be poor. And I have. <laughs> the good news I, is they were right. I mean, that, <laughs> you, you were warned well. <laughs> well, and I guess I have to own a little bit that I like money. I like what it can do for you. I like how it makes things easier. So I'm a little bit of the toxic society, but I also think that everyone should have money. I don't think that it's like a finite resource. So you make that choice and it's kind of fulfilling. You know, you're, you're exercising your brain and you're not poor. So like what, you know, what did you, were you just coasting along then for a decade plus, or was it, was there a, you know, like gradual, you know, pre layoff? Was it like, I don't know if I can do this for 40 years. It, it was, I was always kind of like, I didn't go the big, like, so the track when you get into a top 10 school is to then go to a big law firm and then like you make partner. And in order to do that, you have to get uh, really great grades in the first couple of years, especially your first year. And then you interview for your two all summer at the beginning, like you interview for your summer job right after your first year of law school. And so it's like, I did not get that. That was the game. I did not play it well. And then I was kind of like, oh, I don't know if I want to play this game. And that's why I took a job as a like plaintiff's attorney, because I thought that that would be more of what I, the game I wanted to play. Um, and then I had this client who like totally insisted that he had had trade secrets stolen from him. And objectively, I was like, this is, this case isn't real. Um and I started to get stressed out because he was so stressed out. And I was like, I don't know if I can do this for the rest of my life. And then I told my boss that the case wasn't real. And then I got laid off. So I kind of like talked myself out of that job. So there's another interesting parallel there, which is like to find fulfillment in that you're sort of, you're serving the institution, you know, like the societal mm -hmm. thing of like advocacy and legal representation and like, this institution is so valuable to higher values that if I serve it, good will happen even if this particular case and this particular client aren't d accomplishing that. But mm -hmm. it's very different from like coaching where I mean, oh, yeah, I, guess, I guess you can say coaching is important. And so it's just in a meta sense, it's because it's good that it's happening, but like also very specifically you're working for like this outcome for the person in front of you. Yeah, and, and you're well, invested in that maybe and you're you're sure that there's good to be achieved as opposed to the client whose case you're suspicious of. <laughs> well, so the firm I went to work for was actually the firm that sued Blockbuster for their late fees. You know how Blockbuster used to charge like a full week's worth of rental per day that the video was late? Whoa, I didn't. Yeah. Then they, they got sued by the firm I went to work for and that fee, that late fee, then just turned into a re-renewal of the video because you can't have punishments like that in contract clauses. And that's what they were doing. And so I was like, I loved the aspect of this firm working towards consumer rights. Because if it's not a class action, then that, sh that will never change. 
right? And Blockbuster just t- gets taken adv- or Blockbuster just takes advantage of people. Amazon takes advantage of people. Everyone takes advantage of people. So I liked that that was what it was. And I was so far removed from actually making a difference that it like it just left me stressed out and worried all of the time. And now I'm kind of like, well, I'm not removed from making a difference. I know that my clients' lives change because they tell me. Because they're like, Aaron, that thing that you said to me totally changed my life. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. I mean, there there is a trade-off because like big complex entities, whether they're, whether it's the legal system or a, a giant class action case, or just a big, you know, company that takes thousands of employees to have some complex R and D operation that invents mm-hmm. something amazing. Like there is something that complexity can accomplish, even though you like, there's the whole cog thing within it that you might lose sight of yourself. But as a like sole proprietor, you're probably not going to have the same like scope for your work. And yet, yeah, so maybe it's just different types of people get fulfillment seeing the whole picture and doing the whole picture as opposed to like, yeah, in their cogishness. Maybe. And I, like, I have every intention of growing. Like, I would love for the work that I do on this podcast and the work that you and I are doing together to impact people beyond just the one-on-one clients that I talk to three times a month. Um. Like I want people to hear themselves in the interviews that, that I do so that they can go, Oh, you know, Rob had that story about his second wife and how he's, they had broken up and he saw her and he just like stopped and said, Nope, I'm not going to let this go. And have that moment remind themselves like a year from now, Oh, I'm not going to let this go because it matters to me. Um, And I'll probably never know how that impacts people. (laughs) And I don't mind that. But what does matter to me is having an impact. And I was definitely not having the kind of impact that I wanted to as an attorney. Hmm. How do you think about that from a comedy perspective? It's such an interesting question because I'm like me as a comedian or comedy in general, like. Well, so part of it is you as a comedian, do you think it's like fun to do? Like, I mean, like personal fulfillment is part of it, but mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned at the beginning, like you wanted to bring laughter into the world. So there's some kind of like, you know, mission-y part of that as well. So, you know, how do you think about that? And does that actually connect to your day-to-day going on stage? It seems hard to do comedy from a, like a place where you're like, today I'm going to walk out there and make the world a better place. I mean, that's not what your brand of humor is. (laughs) That is not how 99 point some percent of Chicago improvers go about it. And probably. Yeah, no, a lot of people think of like, so I was always into comedy that had people relate. Like people see themselves in that. When I'm, when I used to do improv, which I don't like doing by the way, but when I did it, one of my favorite bits was where I made a joke about someone putting their Fitbit on a dog so that they got their 10,000 steps in. Um, and it got a huge laugh. And I was like, oh, that's what I 
that's the stuff I want to bring out are those like little secret thoughts about how we game ourselves or how we play against the rules so that we win without winning or having to put in the effort. Um, and I think that like a person's brand of comedy probably reflects more about their experience of the world than it does what their mission is. But the really good comedians are probably coming from a mission. Yeah. Okay. So you're just operating at a higher plane than I ever was able to in my six weeks of like, you're just desperately trying to take one of the ideas floating around around you and come up with something funny. But the the Zen place that's higher than that is actually to do that while connecting to something that you are about. Yeah. I mean, like I'm trying to think of comedians that I really admire and like John Mulaney I don't know exactly what his mission was, but he always has precision as part of his like being. He is a very precise comedian. Um, and I bet that what he is trying to do is make specific points so that people hear him and relate to him and his arguments get put across, but in a way where everyone's like, that's hilarious. Um, And I think it's really hard to create from a place where you don't have an intent, where you don't have a larger goal. Because otherwise you're just creating for other people, right? Like, oh, will other people like this? Who who cares? Do you? Yeah. So how has that evolved? I mean, that gets interesting because it's like you get good at doing a certain thing, but then... So I'm a musician for background also for, mm-hmm. uh, for people listening. So a lot of my creative process, you know, reference comes from that, but it's like the same issue that can come from a song that I wrote six years ago that we're still performing no longer connects in exactly the same way. And, but you know, in some cases, well, whatever, if you're a classic rock band, it could be 40 years later. And it's interesting to like have your, your own, like not just creative spot, but just where you are as a person, evolve, but you're also like carrying around these creative artifacts and figuring out how to like reconnect with that thing every night. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Cause like you hear the stories about what people interpret a song today actually means. And when you were talking, I was like, Oh, time art that like resonates across generations and is timeless. Like, yeah, you may have had a mission in it originally, but the timelessness, what makes it good, is what makes it good, is that there's always something new to discover. There's always a new, you're talking about or singing about something that like carry is a thread that carries through time. Yeah, that gets interesting. I was just reading some film reviews recently and there's, you know, there's like the the fan, hey, did, did, was that correct? Was this theme in there? Was this character really this? And like the, it seems like the new popular way to answer that is if you saw that in there, then yes, it was there. Mm-hmm. And it like, it hits me two ways as a writer because sometimes I really meant something. And so if you wanted to take something different than that away from it, I'm like, I would, I would really like, the, I do care about the actual meaning and intent that I had. But then also, I mean, what I said a minute ago about like trying to connect with the song <laughs> that's old and sometimes, I have to do a little bit of that myself, even though they were my own thoughts. And so I don't, I don't exactly know what the rules should be there, but it does seem like those things are like, they're not static. 
Well, yeah. And like, it's based on this idea that things don't change. Our ideas don't change. We don't change, except we do. So like when you're writing something and it comes out two years later and you didn't necessarily intend it, you might have actually subconsciously intended it. Hmm. Only now you're able to talk about it out loud. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of the work I do as a coach is uncovering what's already there. You know, like issues of self-worth. If somebody's like, I can't ask for a raise. Like, why? Well, because they're not giving them this year. So why can't you ask? Well, because they're going to say no. But why? Like, that has no- them saying no has nothing to do with whether or not you have, have the capability of asking. And so when you start to think about, like, what's actually stopping you, it brings a different layer to the same conversation. Hmm. That's a fun idea. So what, yeah. How do you think, like pick a moment or two in your own life where you had to like, where you were eventually able to identify an artificial barrier like that? When I left my job, like I had this story that I needed to have a hundred thousand dollars saved <laughs> in order to leave safely. And then I had this realization where I was like, I would rather get coffee for a room full of coaches for free than go back and make six figures and not give a shit about what I'm doing. So just like a goal that you'd made that was probably written on some five-year plan that you had and then you just realized it. Well, it was arbitrary. It's like, oh, why a hundred thousand? Why not 40? <laughs> like why, why not 10? If I really want to make something work, I will find a way to make it work. And it was in me realizing that I had the power to like make the choice and make the commitment and also at times make sacrifices. So when you've gone wrong, is it more like, I think for me, the villain is more often passivity. Like I just went, you know, (laughs) whatever call came in, I just chased that thread and I did it. And I never thought about where I wanted to direct myself or I too seldom did that. Mm -hmm. So there's one way to go down the wrong path, but now you're sort of talking about another way to kind of do the same thing is to set an intentional goal at some point in your life and then just keep chasing it, even though you went and what you forgot to do is go back and evaluate it and realize that there was, it didn't hold up. Yeah. Well, and I think, that's what like knowing patterns is really helpful for. One of my patterns is not enough. So from that pattern, it doesn't matter how much planning I have, how many, how much money I have saved. Like there's always going to be something else I can do to stop me from doing the one thing I want to do. And at some point I just have to choose. So what was the moment when you realized you had finally gotten it right and your life was perfectly aligned? I mean, this year has been pretty good. Really? I, I asked that question sarcastically expecting you to say that no one could ever actually reach that point. <laughs> well, I'm no, not saying I'm there. We're living in that moment. <laughs> Let me be very clear. I'm not saying it. like everything is in alignment. Everything is perfect. Like I am still single. <laughs> like <laughs> I still have things in my, I still struggle with my body image and I wish that I had certain things. Um, and I'm way more content with what's not there now than I ever was. 
And that's kind of how I know I'm in alignment is that I don't really feel like I'm constantly trying to fix what's wrong with my life. That's cool. What, what clicked or was that, you know, did you just suddenly realize that you had come to that place of maturity or was there like a, a, a thing? Well, nobody asked me until now. So <laughs> it's kind of fun to be asked that question. And I don't think anything really clicked. It's just like small incremental steps that I took to get here. I just kept choosing what was working. I kept choosing what I wanted. I kept choosing what I needed. Give me a specific micro choice. I mean, and like the more boring and micro, the better of like something that you cut out. Dude, hiring you, you to do my podcast. I was really looking like, for that one. Although isn't that more macro? Just <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, it's a micro choice because like I, before that was doing all of this stuff on my own and hiring you, I was like, wait a second you will create some of these things and teach me how to do some of these things. And it's what I want, but also not hiring you was the thing that was stopping me from doing it. Hmm. Cause I didn't want to figure out how to use pod podcast recording software. I didn't want to like know what microphone to buy or how to interview people or like what the aim of the show would be or what the schedule would be. I just knew I wanted to do podcast. So, and then conversely, what's something that you cut out that, you, you know, something's got to go. If you're going to do the new thing, you've got to drop something or at least change a way of thinking about something. Yeah. Stand up was my, stand up was my dead baby that I had to let go of for a little bit. I did go to my first stand up show since the pandemic, uh, like two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I went to Las Locus, um, which is Janice from mm -hmm. the first episode. It's her show. And I had that like yearning of like, oh, do I want to get back on stage or do I just really like hanging out with comedians? <laughs> so one way to answer that question is, so one of the things about a show like this is, you know, we can make each other laugh, but you're, there's always in the back of your mind that like, mostly this experience that we are now having is designed for other people to react to. And if your background mm -hmm. is on stage, there's something handy about being able to see them if only so that you can see, oh, they did not laugh. We should definitely change the subject immediately. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't like, have that. <laughs> we don't have the the sour face like that wasn't funny. Whenever something I say something that may or may not be funny, I just imagine my dad like not laughing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so as we try to get out of our heads now after I brought that up. <laughs> But like, but it's a different experience. So, you know, when you trade one for the other, what are you liking, you know, more about this format? Obviously you don't get to go deep with someone for an hour one-on-one -on -one in a, in a show like that. And, yeah. and it's also not rehearsed like standup is, but there is something about like the audience connection that's different. So what are you, what are you glad to have acquired and what do you miss? Well, I, I really love the depth. Like I love the depth with which I talk with people. Um, I think it's fun to draw out people's sense of humor, like with some of the guests that we've really been able to laugh. Um, I do miss that like universal moment that you get with stand up, where it's like everyone in the room knows exactly what you're talking about and is laughing so hard because they're like, that's me too. I miss the that's me too. Like, I would really love. <laughs> 
if people were like, oh my God, when you were talking about this and texted me or emailed me or whatever. So eventually what you're saying is we should do one of those live streamed versions of these so we can see see the... I do. Well, or what I would really like, Steve, for us to do is do live shows, like go on tour. Mm. That is, I mean, I listen to podcasts and I hear people talk about their, you know, <laughs> seats for their Santa Fe gig and it sounds cool. It's like, you know, it's like all the things at the same time, like this, this new <laughs> format that we've picked, but added on to all the things that we miss about live performance. Well, you know, I'm sorry I didn't tell you about this, but that is part of my plan for this podcast actually is for us to go on tour. So we have about a year until I plan that. Okay. All right. Get used to it. <laughs> like that was in, there, there's a, this is not advice brief yeah, somewhere. It's part, of, it's part of my like unspoken, well now currently spoken vision for what this could be. Are we starting in Santa Fe? Well, we might have to now. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we might actually have to. I've never been to New Mexico. Why the heck not? I haven't either. Things are farther apart over there. <laughs> That's why I've gotten close. Like I think of Nebraska, Colorado. I've played shows, and mm-hmm. I just feel like when you're in the Midwest, the next city is usually 90 minutes away, and the farther you get out there, people are just like, "Let's get in the car for the next 10 and a half hours," and mm-hmm. it's a different level. Although I also love that part in doses of like the you know the road trip part of touring. I've well I've never gone on tour, but I don't intend this to be like a van experience. Like <laughs> where it's going to be a little more comfortable than you and me in a van. Okay, okay, good. <laughs> I look forward to the, this is not advice. I, I have like Learjet. a little I have I have I'm a snob, Steve. I'm just going to own it. I'm a snob. I like comfort. I want a real bed. So what would have been really handy is if you had stayed at that law firm long enough to walk away with a hundred thousand dollars saved by the Learjet. I mean, I kind of realized that if I stayed at that law firm to save a hundred thousand dollars, it'd be another seven years, and I was not willing to wait that long. Yeah, I I do affirm that choice, and you know, somewhere out there, there's the best Western that can do the job. Mm-hmm. So somewhere in between. Yep. So, all right. So how do you, so you're on like a good, mostly path. How do you take the same process of self-evaluation and apply it to stuff like, how can I coach someone better in an individual session? How could I have handled that interview differently? You know, how do you, how do you like micro improve? Well, I think one of the things that I was trained in as a coach and that Um, I didn't really get before is that there is no end point. There's no point in time where I will ever be the best coach and the only coach. There is no point in time where I will ever be the best interviewer and the only interviewer. And so there is always an opportunity to micro improve. Um, But the other part of it is that like I create projects. I decide what I want things to look like um, from a, like a visionary standpoint And then I work backwards and create steps to get there. So let's say, like, let's use this tour as an example. What do we need in order to have a tour? Well, we need a podcast that has like 50,000 listeners, right? And we need to go to places where they want to listen to us. And we need to have at least 100 people who would be willing to come to a theater to listen to a recording. So 
if that's what we need, then I will work my way backwards right now. We don't have that many listeners at all. (laughs) Kind of talking in a vacuum, but I know for a fact that it is more than two. (laughs) It's less than (laughs) 50,000. Hey, friends. Hey, mom. (laughs) Really appreciate you downloading this every week. It's super supportive. (laughs) But... Like, it's just working to the next goal. Like, if I have the big goal in mind, I'm not only working towards the big goal, I'm also working towards the next goal. The next goal right now is a thousand people per episode. And how do you break that down? I mean, like, one of my takeaways would be that I need to be a more interesting person <laughs> to make somebody want to listen to that. But sorry, I'm like, that That part is mostly facetious, but, you know, there's a marketing aspect, there's a like a... There's a marketing aspect. There's an enrollment aspect, like getting people on board for spending an hour of their lives. Um, And also there's just a like, people forget about the magic of just saying things into the universe. Shit happens when you say it. That score that I got on the LSAT that was from like a 50th percentile to 93rd, it was because I was like, I want this score. I said it over and over and over again. And you got that, that specific number? I got number? that exact score. Whoa. I mean, there is, you mentioned that at the beginning and I thought, you know, part of that might be that you had a great day that day, but part the, you know, the adrenaline of like the live environment. And so, you know, is that something like, can you relate to that from comedy? Are you a gamer? Like you get it under the, the lights and the adrenaline pumps and you, the best comes out of you? Yeah, a little. Like there, well, I, it's a performance thing. Like if you have a strong performance context or a strong performance streak, then yeah, lights or pressure might actually work for you. Um, but also there's the expectations thing. Like I sucked at taking bar exams. That's a lights performance, whatever thing, if there ever was one. And I failed a bunch of bar exams. I mean, I passed them eventually, but like I did not do well on the bar exams. And I think it's because I was so afraid of that that it happened. Whereas with the LSAT, I was like, so ready to succeed and believing that I could and believing that the universe was going to support me if it was in the best interest of the world. Like, I think with that mindset, different things happen. Hmm. I also, I don't know if for me, at least in those situations, like I, I am someone who is, like if, if it's different, obviously there, you get to a place where you're so used to playing in front of a hundred people that that no longer is a thing. But if I'm in a context where there is real adrenaline, either cause it's competitive or there's a lot on the line, like it really does affect me. And it's almost like that, that means I'm not going to like bring my median performance. It means I will either mm-hmm. do exceptionally well or completely fall off the horse totally. and, and, and then get trampled. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the the danger and also the excitement of living on the edge and living up to your potential. Like your potential could be also something other people aren't ready for. And that's where like talking about what success matters to you. Cause for a lot of people, the success is not like falling on your face and having everyone stare at you blankly. It's that you did it. Hmm. So when we go on tour, will you give advice like to the crowd? should we, should I, should I get like 10 minutes of Aaron being a know-it-all? I mean, either that or vice versa. Maybe it's like, who would, who would we like to call on from the group to give you advice? Oh my God. 
I would get so mad. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you tell me what to do. I had enough of that as a teenager. (laughs) Good night, Santa Fe. This is over. (laughs) Your advice sucks. (laughs) What's a, yeah, is that a lifelong thing? Because, you know, lawyers give advice. Was there a a moment when you realized? I know it all. Okay. My family is really righteous. Like, we all think we're right about everything all of the time. And for the most part, we are. But then, like, that's how I grew up, right? Was to argue for your point so that you were heard and to be sure that you know something. Also, it sometimes isn't fun to hang out with people who are like that. (laughs) I mean, it's, yeah, how much, like, self-editing did you have to do when you transition from lawyering to coaching then? Because there's a little bit of you, advice to maybe still, part of it, but the delivery still, is different. <laughs> so much editing. Well, now I kind of like take what I experience. Like I don't have that same kind of judgment of like right and wrong, but I will hear things and be like, I can I can tell when I'm being right about something rather than curious. So if I come up with something where I'm like, oh, this is stupid, I have to like train myself to be curious about it rather than be judgmental. What's that process? Like what's a, what's the diagnosis look like? How do you, what do you feel like when you recognize it? And then what do you do to get out of that? I usually roll my eyes at myself. Like there's an internal like, oh, I'm being a dick. And then I have to go, wait a second, what's this about? And I take a deep breath. And then I like pull back and I think, okay, what is it that I feel I'm so right about in this moment? And then I think, well, what don't I know? What, what is the, what are the pieces of information of which I'm unaware that has me not understanding? Which, you know, the, the show is probably good for you in that way because interviewing is a context when you're asking the questions, but there's like no pressure on you to come up with a solution. So in the, Mm -hmm. in this like free listening environment, you know, through 10 episodes or so, what are some things that you have learned, not just in the process of uncovering a great story, but kind of a a takeaway? I wish I was more like so-and-so at such and such. Um, you know, like, What I've learned from everyone that has come on the show is that, like, there isn't one way for something to happen. There's no set path. And so, like, Rob was talking about all of the things that Rob is the local first guy. I think he's episode eight. You know, he was talking about why he focuses on local community so much rather than like the overarching structure of the world. And it was because he could make an impact there. And like, he really believes that local businesses are how we grow. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. Like you're building a pyramid of across the, like from the bottom up where you're trying to go to a point rather than like build an empire. I don't know. It doesn't make sense, but I learned a lot from that. Jamie, I learned so much from about like what it means to do business from kindness. 
and to have a whole man like manufacture products to your exact standards that are not necessarily the cost effective easy standards. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and like when we were when Chelsea and I were talking about like how do you create a brand or like how do you know what your market is like all of those things. There's so much like it's not the same, and also it's the same, and I think that's. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but those are some of the things that I've learned. And how do, how do any of those change the way that you're doing any aspect of your life or this show or so forth? I say that Mm. I I feel like I was frequently inspired interviewing like startup founders. And then half the time their life experience was so different than mine that there was really no, nothing for me to do with the inspiring points. But I think what you're talking about, there are ways. You know, it's funny. I, I, one of the things I took away from Chelsea's, episode was like having work work for her and since she and I recorded that I was like oh what is it that I need and I was like I need a week every month for me to do administrative stuff and record podcasts and whatever so I changed my practice so I'm not doing four sessions a month I'm only doing three um that's like one tiny piece because you know, all of the, and then I'm the kind of person who like the way I learn, I pick up pieces of information and then three months or six months or two days or three weeks later, I will do something differently and I won't necessarily connect it back to what the one thing was. But if somebody asked me to, like maybe I could. So I'm certain that there are things that I've learned that I just am blinking on right now. One other key question occurred to me. It's it's pretty unique. I'm excited to introduce it to your show. I just wanted to ask you, (laughs) what is success to you? Yeah. Um, So like I said, I like money. So I have a certain like financial threshold that success will mean that I'm not there yet. Um, It's making more than six figures. Like after taxes and everything. Why that threshold? Well, I like that threshold to me or after expenses and after, yeah, after expenses and taxes, that is like the, I, (laughs) that's just a measurement by which like I was previously, I was making more than six figures as an attorney. And so there's something about like making this choice to make this transition that I have that measurement in my head as a moment of success. Um, it is not the only thing, but I do. That's like something I'm aiming for. Um, another thing for, for me success wise is that like, I don't feel like I'm suffering. I feel like I'm thriving. And sometimes, um, I have a pattern where I will suffer through something so that like it gets done. Oh no. Oh no. Actually, this has happened before. And it's fine. Back. Okay. Um, it's, for, it's just so that Steve doesn't have to edit this. We got a little pop-up that said server disconnected, and both of us had a little panic moment. And then I remembered it. It happened before, and it's fine. But if you uh, choose to interpret it through the lens of you were describing what you thought success looked like, and then we were like, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no, oh, no Aaron. You are, this is where everyone gets to be judgmental about me being greedy. And then we reconnected. Then we were fine. (laughs) 
<laughs> um, and so then I think like another measurement of success for me is like, do I get to have free time? So somewhere in there. All right. So there's like a financial piece that's kind of like table stakes. So you already, you know, you had, you were in a career that paid well that mm-hmm. you chose to get out of. And so now you're looking for something that is more professionally fulfilling, but like still hits this bar. It's sort of like proving that you can do the more interesting, fulfilling thing while uh-huh. also hitting some standard. And then I guess oh, yeah, that, I that need to, be- I really need to be right about that, Steve. <laughs> 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 like it's very important to me that I'm right, that you can have a fulfilling career where you have impact in people, like where you positively impact people in the way that you intend and you are not poor and your services are valued um, and you feel valued, like you value yourself. So if you want to support Aaron on Patreon, it's really critical to her self-image. I don't have a Patreon. <laughs> Just but I will, I will do a workshop for you. Maybe I should set up a Patreon so you can just tip me. Mm, there you go. I have Venmo. You can find me. It's not hard. <laughs> if, you, if you are moved by the story about Aaron's financial threshold and just want to help out, it's available to you one way or another. <laughs> I'm, I'm not above it. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Aaron, you've been a great guest. You're welcome here on the show really anytime. Thanks so much, Steve. I'm, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for having me on my own show. My pleasure. I'll, uh, here, I'll, I'll give you the keys back. Okay, thanks. <laughs> this is Not Advice is brought to you by me, Erin Conlin. If you are interested in learning more about my coaching practice or how we might be able to work together, please visit erinconlin.com. This podcast would not have happened without production support from Cedar Cathedral Narrative Studio.